we are in the process of deluding ourselves about what technology is, uh, we, we could actually say that that washing machine magically appropriates uh, the labor and, and resources of, of, of China, for example, and puts it at the disposal of people in, in Europe or North America. There, there's a magic about technology in that it becomes a, an instrument for appropriating other people's labor and, and land without us seeing it. Ecologies podcast. The aim of this project is to grapple with the multifaceted ecological crisis confronting us. In this context, we often encounter a widespread common sense that technological progress will deliver us from a wide variety of crises, including global poverty and inequality, but also carbon emissions, environmental devastation, and pollution. The idea that windmills and solar panels will be crucial in combating climate change and that the further spread of electricity, motorized vehicles and household appliances will lift billions out of poverty and emancipate women across the world presents itself increasingly as an unquestionable truth of economic and human rationality. Now, we recently had the great pleasure of having a conversation with Alf Hornborg, who is a professor at the University of Lund in Sweden and coordinator of their Human Ecology Division. In his wide-ranging academic work, including recent books like Global Magic and Nature, Society and Justice in the Anthropocene, Alf has taken on precisely this type of technological progress narrative do modern technologies actually save time and increase efficiency? Can technologies live up to their emancipatory promises? According to Alf Hornborg, this appearance of modern technology dissolves once we cease to turn a blind eye to the unequal global relations which make them possible. Through his critical provocations, modern technologies lose their appearance as time-saving and efficiency-increasing devices and reveal themselves as part of a global mechanism for appropriating human lifetime and natural resources from the peripheries of the world system. In this first part of our conversation, we talk about why washing machines actually perform magic and how the tight hold of neoclassical economics and technological progress narratives on our thinking stands in the way of devising genuinely emancipatory approaches to the ecological crisis. So yeah, you, you just mentioned that you had no idea where this conversation was going um, besides the uh, short indication that I, I gave you in the few emails. Um, and this project, the, the Three Ecologies Project, 
uh, is about confronting the, the severity, the depth of the ecological crises that we face, but also the, the intertwined social and, and subjective crises. And one of the mottos that we uh, like to stand by is that there are no easy answers uh, to any of these questions. And, and when we think of that motto, one of the first people that came to my mind is oh, Alf Hornbar. He doesn't <laughs> allow you to think of any easy answers. Uh, you know, I've been studying the, the renewable energy transition for uh, a few years now, and your work is constantly this sort of a thorn in the side of any um, misplaced uh, optimism about these technologies, um, and and always reminding us to to ground them not only in their global social context, um, but also in the sort of inherent productive powers of the earth as well, and and trying to understand. Um, the the limits to um, the limits to an understanding of efficient technology when it's set at the local level. Um, so I'm I'm very happy to to uh, have you on here, but I wanted to hand it off to Lucas. Yeah, sure. So um, I've only recently started reading your work, and 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 because Will pointed me in the in in, in your direction, and uh, so in. In, in preparation of this for this conversation, I was obviously quite amazed by the by the sheer uh, scope and ambition of your work of trying to understand the global system and trying to understand uh, the 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 world system, the global metabolism. And um, what I, however, found most intriguing is that sometimes these very wide-reaching and very ambitious attempts to understand the whole thing together uh, are oftentimes with you I found uh, founded on, on on rather humble and quite mundane experiences or insights um, and one of the ones that I found uh, that, I, that I thought might be a good a good starting point for us today was um, to ask you why you were so enraged uh, by the systematic planting of willow trees in rural Sweden in the 1980s. And so where were you at the time and how, how did this type of experience maybe put you on a journey of thinking about global metabolism? Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, you know, I, I, as I mentioned in my most recent book, uh, Nature, Society and Justice, in the Anthropocene, I, I've been raising sheep uh, in the Swedish countryside. I did for about 14 years. And it was not just like, you know, five or six sheep, like a hobby. I had almost 190 ewes and they had about you know 350 lambs every spring. So it was really quite a, a job. Um, and I guess now that I'm retired and I, I've sold my sheep long time ago, I, looking back at that period, I realized how much uh, insight it actually gave me about uh, things like productivity. What what can you get out of the earth, you know? And um, I was also struggling on an annual basis to get rid of the 
bushes that were invading the fields where I wanted to harvest my hay and where my sheep would, would do their grazing. And I knew that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, people had been doing this in the Swedish countryside, clearing clearing off the bushes to, to keep you know, the pastures open for grazing animals. And um, that's why I was so amazed when I was seeing in neighboring farms and so on along the highway that people were actually planting bushes, willow bushes uh, in, 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 the, in the fields. Uh, and I knew that they did it for the purpose of producing energy or they thought they would anyway. So instead of producing food for humans or fodder for animals, uh, for example, oats for the draft horses that used to be our main energy source about 150 years ago, um, they were planting bushes. And it struck me as impossible to grasp how it would be possible to to get a net gain of energy out of this system. I mean, all the machines that would need to be used, you know, to 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 plant those willow trees, to chip them, to to burn them, to convert them into some kind of kinetic energy, it just struck me as an illusion. And now I'm much more persuaded that it actually was an illusion. And I, I don't see anybody planting willow trees anymore, but it just, it just goes to show how far our illusions of machine fetishism can take us, how far away we get from the realities of the landscape in which we are immersed. Mm. And I think one of the sentences that really uh, struck me when you I think it was at a lecture somewhere where you mentioned that example and you said that you were really puzzled by how it could happen that you, European countries like Sweden could uh, could waste their most their most fertile, their most precious agricultural land for the planting of bushes. And that this sort of sent you maybe on a quest to seek answers that didn't just focus on the on the little niche of that but ask questions about like what are the global conditions for us to waste this incredibly precious resource at home or to be incredibly wasteful with this to be much to be wasteful to an extent where past generations would have really shaken their shaken their heads and um absolutely their fingers at us yeah, I mean, you, I can see wherever I go the the enormous amounts of labor that's gone into just gaining a few more square meters of agricultural soil by by digging ditches, by 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 cutting down trees, by removing rocks, and 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 I have a tremendous respect for all the labor, the human labor that's gone into producing this agricultural land. I'm also, and I've been aware for for decades, of course, of how desperate many people are in the global south to get their own plots of land in Latin America and in Africa and so on. And I felt it was sort of really extremely arrogant the way Europeans and North Americans can treat land. And it intrigued me about, you know, the role of land in our worldview, how we think of land and how we have how we have arrived at a cosmology where land is basically expendable and that you can use it 
you know, in, in any way you feel like it. You don't respect the enormous importance of, of soil. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Tanya Murray Lee has this paper called What is Land? Uh, and it's based on uh, anthropological fieldwork that she did in Borneo, um, where she tries to understand how the indigenous people there don't don't have a definition of land that is even near compatible um, to that which which dominates in uh, the financial markets of, of London or uh, you know trading houses in, in Chicago and so on, and how much work sort of goes into assembling what we call land um, as well. I mean, it's a bit of an aside, um, yeah, but it's no, but it's a. Um, the, the homogenization process and even rendering those things calculable mm. um, is something which I think complements your uh, yeah. understanding of, of notions of productivity very well. Exactly. And, and I, I felt that, uh, I mean, what I've been battling for so long is the, I guess, the worldview promulgated by mainstream economic science. And, and it struck me that this way of thinking about the world that that we're used to after 200 years or so of, of, of mainstream economic thinking is is based on the um, the idea that land is expendable that you can actually substitute land with capital or, or, or labor perhaps but you don't really need land and of course that in itself I think is very strongly connected to the fact that we're up to 90% dependent on fossil energy, which means going down beneath the surface of the land um, and, and, and getting our energy from subterranean sources, which means that the horizontal surfaces uh, from which our ancestors used to draw their energy, their fodder and their food, uh, is no longer an energy source for fossil fuel-based society. So our economic science in that respect is based on a fossil fuel conditioned worldview. Hmm. And I, I have a specific question uh, about your your war with neoclassical economics. Do you think that has something to do with your context in Sweden and the very strong role that uh, the Swedish Academy and also the, the central bank plays in, in sort of promulgating a, a certain understanding of economic science on, on the global scale? Um, have you it could yeah. very well be. It could very well be. I mean, I, I think Sweden is among the most, actually, to some people's surprise, it's one of the most neoliberal countries in the world. And, um, you know, to find a professor of economics at one of the Swedish universities that had, does not have a neo neoclassical or neoliberal perspective, you'd have to go somewhere else in Sweden. Um, the only heterodox economics, economics professor that I know of uh, in Scandinavia is in Finland, you know. <laughs> so so maybe, maybe it has something to do with Sweden. On the other hand, of course, Sweden has been, has always been uh, debating uh, global issues of uh, distribution and so on. I mean, the first major uh, United Nations conference on environment and development was in Stockholm in 1972 and so on. So my generation was raised with a strong global awareness of, of uh, diminishing sustainability and in global injustices. But uh, mainstream academia have not really served up 
very much of an alternative to to business as usual. One thing that struck me that I I should mention uh, since you mentioned this idea this 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 my my horror at the, at the willow bushes is is this this idea that struck me that you know i it, it's really uh, a, a discussion of biofuels and it struck me that the notion of biofuels is really strange when you think about it our pre-modern ancestors use nothing but biofuels. I mean, they their horses were propelled with oats and so on, right? And, and then we got fossil fuel propelled engines like the steam engine, like the combustion engine. And it seems like the whole idea of propelling combustion engines with biofuels is a perversion of this situation. It, it's as weird as if you were tried to propel horses with with oil or coal. I mean, it, it, the, the combustion engine is, is a way of harnessing uh, fossil energy. Uh, it's really a counterfeit organism. You know, they talk about the iron horse even in, in the 19th century, but uh, an engine is really... Uh, a, a counterfeit organism. It's it's a mechanical slave or a mechanical horse that is supposed to work for you. So you feed it fossil energy. And then we have this idea that it would be efficient to feed it with biofuels. But then I would argue, no, it would be more efficient to use land to grow oats for horses than to grow sugarcane that is turned into ethanol that is used for propelling engines. There is a logical lock-in here in terms of understanding how land can be converted into technological efficacy. sort of trying to understand this uh the logic behind the insanity once you see the insanity of it mm-hmm. i guess i you have you you sent us this little piece that you i think recently wrote as well about the about the magic the washing uh, magical washing machine and you've you've sort of reappropriated that word magic which is uh which is usually just uh used as a as a kind of a joke right mm-hmm. and i mean in um in in your book global magic you write um we need to employ magic the term magic in a way that makes the concept more useful than simply a category for condescendingly dismissing forms of rationality that to modern people seem uninformed and so um I was wondering if we could if we could sort of talk about the magical washing machine. Um, I actually I watched the so it's based on a on a TED talk and the the, the TED conference might be one of the places where uh, uh, the thought of modernization and development is still uh, well and alive in the 21st century, even though in academic circles it's outside of economic faculties it's 
probably quite frowned upon, but somehow it's it's really thriving there in this sort of popular mm-hmm. uh, um, popular scientific arena, right? And we and um, y- you analyze a uh, a TED talk by your by your fellow countryman um, Hans Hans Rosling, who. Um, who's this very entertaining uh, scientist in the way that people in the, in, the, in the popular perception are just called scientists, but you point out he comes from medical sciences and that might not be a coincidence. And um, I just thought it was quite interesting that his book also, one of the books that he wrote was called Factfulness. And then his talk is called The Magical Washing Machine. So there seems to be within this, within um, within this attempt to, uh, or by these preachers of the sort of advancement of civilization, oh, this is all getting better, all the indicators, all the data is showing us uh, humans are doing better every decade, every year or whatever, and we can go back and it's in the data. And so everything else is just uninformed pessimism. Um, and I just found it quite interesting that that they, that people like Hans Rosling still feel so compelled to to use this dig against, because the factfulness is basically a dig against faith, right? Because we would use faithfulness. So it's, no, we don't need mm. faith anymore. We have facts now. We have the facts of, mm. of, of, of statistics and of economic science. So there's no longer any faith required. To, to, you don't, you no longer have to believe that this is uh, making humanity better. It's factually making humanity better, um, and 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 the same with magic, right? Um, and you kind of come to the to the conclusion where you say, no, let's look at the actual magic in the washing machine. Yeah, no, there was a lot of uh, hype about Hans Rosling, and of course, sadly, he passed away uh, some years ago. Uh, but um, there was a very strong uh, uh, conviction throughout not only Swedish society, but, but throughout global society that, that Hans Rusling represented a down to earth, rational, optimistic understanding of the world. No weird social science theorists, no, um, you know, just facts, the basic facts. And, and, uh, I, I think that the ambition was simply to get the facts right, the statistics, the, the quantitative figures right about health and living standards and energy consumption and so on. And and then we would know that, you know, the world is just getting better and better uh, and, and we don't need to be at all pessimistic. Uh, and I followed, he was very pedagogical and he had, you've probably seen several of his YouTubes and TED Talks where he uses little yellow puppets, one for each billion people to show which ones have cars, which ones have washing machines and which ones can only afford sandals. And um, I, I was sort of struck uh, with the challenge of how to how to confront this. I, I knew that there was a very strong establishment support for his very optimistic perspective on the world. I mean, in the United States, I think um, Bill Gates has promoted the book. Uh, and in Sweden, it was offered as a free gift to all high school graduates and so on. You know, so there's a tremendous um, hype about this This understanding of the world, which was really at odds with just about everything I'd ever learned. And um, 
I, I realized that the only way to to um, get into a dialogue with such a very clear pedagogical message is to try to be as clear, uh, but in an opposite way. So I used his model of those seven yellow puppets and said that, you know, it's not obvious to Hans Rusling being a medical scientist rather than a social scientist, but those seven yellow puppets are not just standing in line waiting for um, progress. They are actually involved in social relations with each other. And uh, the fact that two of them work for very, very low salaries is what makes it possible for one of them to buy cars. It's also the reason why those two cannot afford a car. So there is a connectivity and interaction between those puppets, which only a social scientist can be aware of when we're talking about world systems and dependency theory and colonialism and imperialism and all these things, um, unequal exchange. And, and these 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 theoretical framings of world poverty were completely alien to Hans Rosling. And that's why his message was so nice and appealing and simple and persuasive. And it was also why I think so many people were attracted by it, because it gave us a nice, comfortable feeling of being on the right track. Um, yeah, and I, I just think the the TED talk on the washing machine machine is such an excellent example of how this optimistic view of of, of human progress necessarily has to uh, understand technology in a certain way as being an improvement, a way of saving time. And I certainly won't deny that the washing machine has saved time for for European women and American women. Uh, in that TED talk, Hans Rosling argues that it it gave them time to read, for example, it saved their time. Uh, but he actually mentions, I think he mentions in the same TED talk that only two of those seven and a half billion people in the world can actually afford access to a washing machine. And he never once mentions that the machine itself is an embodiment of low income labor in most of it in, in, in South and Eastern Asia. Uh, people working in mines to dig up the uh, minerals, uh, people manufacturing the machines, people working with transporting them to markets in Europe and North America and so on and so on. N not to mention what happens when machine is discarded. I mean, who is going to take care of the garbage and so on and so on? Who is going to see to it that the machine is provided with, with water and with electricity? There's so much... Uh, labor and resources embodied in the machine that looking at the machine as simply a way of saving time is a perfect illustration of what I call machine fetishism. Mm. It is to, to take the machine out of its global meta metabolic context, looking only at the machine and saying, wow, isn't this wonderful? Look what it did. My grandmother just loved the machine. She wanted to press the button. 
you know, when they started it. And yeah, because he tells he tells this quite endearing story. I think for listeners, you should definitely it's a 10 minute video. And it's quite it's I think it's also testament to the ability of Hans Rosling to give mm-hmm. this very, very compelling. And I mean, he has an incredible talent for of, 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 en- of entertainment, mm-hmm. really. Um, yeah. He's 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 very witty and he gives a very strong version of what you would probably call common sense, economic and mm-hmm. technological common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the the story that he's telling, and he has, it's quite interesting because on the stage, he has the laundry machine and the laundry machine itself is incorporated into his presentation, into his performance. Mm-hmm. It's quite a, it's quite a performance really. He's quite well known for his performances. I think one of his other Ted talks is, is, is quite amazing in terms of his ability to perform. Um, because the interesting thing is he can, in our common sense, he can just take a washing machine completely out of his context, out of its context and put it on the stage, right? He doesn't need to include the sort of the five trash pickers in some wherever on whatever trash pile this the the, the pieces of it will end up once it's discarded or the people, all these things you mentioned, the people assembling it, the people producing the energy for the people assembling it. So he doesn't, he doesn't need to put all of these pieces on the stage. And so he he can neatly compare the washing machine abstracted from all these relations to the other 7 billion people in the world to his uh, grandmother in Sweden who still had to wash uh, laundry by hand. And then, of course, this lament to us is very, we, we feel like, oh, it's terrible that women uh, that women are in this subdued position where they're forced to do this or where they're sort of socially compelled to, to spend hours per week um, doing this kind of work. Um, and and then he he tells the story where he says the the first day the family got a got a laundry machine and then they put the load in and then they pressed the button and it started turning and the grandmother watched the entire run of the laundry machine and just and it's it's a very it's a very very compelling story. Yeah, and I think this word magic is really important. I I I, uh, I should connect to that too because I mean he calls his TED talk on the washing machine the magic washing machine and like you say it's it's it's, it's supposed to be a joke because you know a, mag- a washing machine is not magic no but um I I believe that technology does have an element of magic um and this is what i mean by the word machine fetishism because the word fetishism actually comes from a portuguese word for magic uh, feitiço and uh, uh, i i do yeah. think that we are we are in the process of deluding ourselves about what technology is uh, we we could actually say that that washing machine magically appropriates uh, the labor and and resources of, of, of China, for example, uh, and puts it uh, at the disposal of of people in in Europe or North America. There, there's a magic about technology in that it becomes a, an instrument for appropriating other people's labor and and land without us seeing it. So there's an irony in in that uh, title, the magic washing machine, uh, because it actually is magic in a sense that Hans Rosling did not have a clue about. Uh, and I would like to uncover that magical aspect of technology. Uh, like you say, we have been using magic for those kinds of things that 
you know, there are inferior, they're based on inferior kinds of knowledge and, and, and we should really distinguish magic from our own technology, our own science, which is more enlightened. But there are aspects of our own technology and science that are hidden from our current view. So that in that sense, we're still suffering from magical illusions. in global magic that magic is not merely a practice constrained by the absence of objectively efficacious knowledge but a particular kind of social strategy for achieving specific Mm -hmm. ends and those Mm -hmm. ends being ultimately time space appropriation you're right which yeah in that book you lay out has a ancient history uh from ancient rome and and various uh empires of the Mediterranean to empires of uh, the Americas, the Inca empire and, and the practices where um, peasants would exchange their labor for maize beer in the ceremonial um, exchanges with, with the emperor or with the emperor's delegates. Um, and, and you stress a, a, a continuity um, from ancient Rome to, to Wall Street in that book. But you also point out that it is the, the global nature of those relationships of time-space appropriation, but also the technologically mediated nature, which distinguishes them as well. So it's, there are impersonal relations of domination um, going on. in in contrast to you know previous regimes of, of personal domination is that a fair way to characterize it it, it is yeah and i i think it's um, i mean i i've tried for for decades different ways of what i call defamiliarizing uh, our modern day um, concepts of of technology and growth and this was actually this chapter you're mentioning in global magic is is one strategy for doing that for showing that there is a continuity between the ancient empires of rome and china and so on and what we're doing today um what, what what industrial britain did in the 19th century and what financial capitalists are doing on Wall Street today and so on. And and that this continuity is not evident to us. We think that there was a decisive discontinuity with the Industrial Revolution. Then we moved from, from you know, from slavery and, and, and um, appropriation of, of, of the labor of peasants and so on into a modern society where we use technology instead somehow. And we, be, we were enlightened and modern. And I'm trying to show that this is just the most recent strategy. Technology is the most recent strategy for doing what we have always been doing in civilization. That is dominating, appropriating and exploiting other uh, populations. And uh, we, we, we can't see how technology is doing this. That, that, that's why our, our challenge now is to expose the, the specific ways in which technology functions as such, an, uh, such a strategy of, of exploitation. 
Yeah, I, I mentioned in the email I sent to you that uh, I'd i been reading a lot of uh, work in the tradition of the Neue Marx Lecture, um, sort of coming out of the Frankfurt School, people like Moshe Pastone, um, who, who wrote the book Time, Labor and Impersonal Domination and, and developing this new, new reading of Marx in which fetishism uh, plays a, a much more central role in the economic uh, theory and, and where it's not only commodities and money that are fetish, but capital that is a fetish as well, that aids in this process mm -hmm. of uh, impersonal domination on a global scale. And that you we can't have the social relations we have today, but through things. Things are, things are not... Um, mystifying the relationship, but they are ordering the relationship. Or perhaps if you add thermodynamic principles and disordering the relationship mm. uh, in, in a particular way as well. So I yeah, I think there's a lot of work theoretically to do there on um, the implications of the notion of fetishism in Marxist theory. And uh, I certainly would, would, would need to read more of that. Um, but I, I do find it a problem. I mean, my own my own idea of, of machine fetishism definitely owes very much to the concepts of money fetishism and commodity fetishism in, in, in Marxism. Uh, but it strikes me as a, as a paradox that technology in Marxist theory is actually fetishized, that Marx himself was a machine fetishist uh, who would probably have had a lot in common with, with uh, eco-modernists of today who, who believe in technological solutions. Marx was very happy about steam engines and he thought that they would be the future of the global proletariat. And against that background, it's not really surprising to find Marxists like, like uh, Aram Bastani write a book uh, on a fully automated luxury communism, where he says that basically technology is going to make all labor superfluous and we're going to live a very happy life with our machines. Because this, and he claims to be a Marxist. Of course, we have a lot of Marxists saying that he's, he's wrong. But it doesn't surprise me how that kind of approach to technology could emerge out of a Marxist uh, worldview, actually. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting point that I that I continue to grapple with and will probably grapple with throughout throughout my life. But it's uh, someone like uh, Michael Heinrich writes how Marx made a break with uh, you know Ricardo Smith and all of the classical economists, but sometimes remain trapped in the sort of spontaneous ideology of the 19th century bourgeoisie as well. And I think that yeah. your, your reading of technology is, is something which enriches that idea of the, the instances where, where Marx sometimes remained trapped there. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I, I think that there's, there's so many interesting uh, parallels to be sketched uh, in in connecting the, these profoundly anthropological understandings, but also global understandings of impersonal domination. Um, well, that's interesting. I'm glad you see that. I, I was, you know, uh, are you aware of the work of like Ted Benton, for example? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. There, there was a whole, um, there was a, a few, Ted Benton wrote one of the most important pieces on, on eco-socialism um, back in the 80s, I think. And uh, he also argued that we must understand Marx as having been confined to a certain uh, industrial worldview of the mid-19th century. 
And, and I do agree that that was the case. And of course, since then, we've seen a lot of people defending Marx as being sort of the father of ecological economics and ecological through and through. But I don't think that's quite fair. I think Marx was very inspired by technological progress and he saw technological progress in Britain as something that would be an advantage to the working class in the long run. And I don't think we're doing anybody a service by uh, by pretending that was not the case. was just thinking that somehow connects some of these different discussions because I mean I'm not sure to what extent we'll get into the depths of that theme but this question of the Anthropocene as well right mm -hmm. so there's the Anthropocene but then also the question of capitalism and the question of, of, of technological progress they seem to be all somehow connected as questions of dating like when do we start the, 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 the dating of this the question is did something radically change with the expropriation of, of peasants or did something fundamentally change when the steam engine when uh, managed to harness a coal uh, for energy and then there's a question of okay Anthropocene when when should we this question of when did the human become a significant influence on on geology which part of the human is it and so there are lots of contestations about dating and i, I thought actually uh, quickly going back to the to the to the magical washing machine i thought that one really excellent point you made in because you kind of you kind of admit that because there's also a question of dating right within these narratives of modernization where people say like Hans Rosling would have said um, we just need to fight for everyone to have a washing machine mm -hmm. and um, they can make that claim because they construe technological pro progress in terms of time rather than in terms of space, which you kind of emphasize. You say inequalities are differences in historical time rather than global space mm -hmm. in their idea of inequalities. And so I thought one really interesting point was that you said um, – The impression is that what for most of the world was an extreme low watermark, the year 1800, was representative of the human condition up until then. Rosling celebrates the extremely unequal world economy of today by demonstrating that inequalities are not quite as obscene as they were 200 years ago. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of these, a lot of these debates that we start seeding the ground once we agree to a certain time frame, right? And that's so important that the time frames, if we, if we want to have actual arguments about this, we have to be very wary of like, okay, what time frame are you picking here? And I really like the point that you made here, which also made me think, and you, don't, you didn't make this explicit here, you didn't use the language of primitive accumulation, which is a, a, a Marxist concept, which you could say you could apply to like you're basically saying the colonialism and the imperialism that happened between 1500 and 1800 is sort of neatly left out of the picture. And then we start at 1800 and, and call that the natural human condition. And from there, it looks like it gets better, but it's sort of, 
first breaking your leg and then giving you a crutch and then celebrating yourself for the for your generosity of handing out a crutch or something mm -hmm. so uh, i was wondering if you had ever thought because one thing that came up for me was a question i don't the for instance because there's still this underlying assumption um or it's something that I want to challenge at least, this assumption, okay, maybe not everyone can get a washing machine, but did it not at least emancipate women here? So even if we admit your point, okay, unequal exchange is the basis for technology like the washing machine. So it's delusional to think we could have 8 billion washing machines because who would build the washing, would the one, would the poorest person build their own washing machine? Like how is that, who's, who's the labor for them? Who's the externalized resources for them where, where we don't have another planet who can supply that labor and land. Yeah. So within the confines, but then the kind of, the thought that I had was that I would actually like to, and I think you're sympathetic to this idea of challenging even the idea that washing machines so greatly emancipated women in the in the West or in the in 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 the in the industrialized nations. And I, I wanted to use the same argument you made about the 1800 watermark, because the interesting thing is that when Rosling says his grandmother, who had to do all this laundry was then emancipated, or his mother, then emancipated by the laundry machine, he takes sort of the the gender relations of early 20th century as the sort of natural condition of the woman in society. And I was thinking of the work of Silvia Federici, who actually set, shows that similar to like the expropriation of the peasantry and colonialism and imperialism abroad, things like the witch hunt uh, the witch hunts over over centuries contributed to confining women to a very very specific role, which which gets us to the point where women do all the laundry, um, and 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 we sort of assume oh that's the natural condition, so the washing machine made it better for those people. But so I kind of wanted to include even us sort of profiteers into this into this different way of looking at that history and into that uh, kind of primitive accumulation. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, there, there are two questions that that I, I like to respond to that you brought up here, and and one of them is is the extent to which household appliances have actually emancipated, uh, particularly women's time, and uh, definitely I'm, I'm I'm sure it has. But but I, we should mention that there have been several studies, uh, you know, where where showing that they haven't really. Uh, they haven't really decreased the amount of time on average that women spend in household work, um, which is pretty surprising because you'd think that with vacuum cleaners and washing machines and microwave ovens, you would have with these women, women would need to spend much less time working with their households. But but in fact, if you really measure the time they spend, you know, for example, in, in, in laundry, you know, you we have more clothes to wash, we we need to wash them more often and so on. So somehow uh, housework has expanded in time so that women are, are just as much slaves of their households as they've ever been. Um, but to the extent that, uh, say, middle class women have been emancipated by household appliances, we should remember that what has happened, uh, say, if we go back 120 years or so, it was very common for middle class households, both in Europe and North America, to have um, um, servants working for them, house servants. 
and um, they had they were very low wage labor. And you could say that like from the 1920s and on, middle class households replaced these people with machines, with appliances. But the interesting thing is we should we should ask ourselves is like if you think of where these machines were actually made, under what conditions they were manufactured, the cost of the labor that went into making them, um, they have really just displaced the slave labor of their servants, so to speak, in the 1920s onto low income labor in China. And they've done this by means of technology. And, and we, the official ideology is that we have replaced uh, a lot of housework with machines, but we've actually displaced work onto low wage labor uh, on other uh, in other countries. That, that's one of the issues I wanted to to respond to. And the other is what you started out by talking about uh, on the discontinuity of the Anthropocene and, and and technology and so on. I've been quite involved with with the uh, Anthropocene discussion, and I'm. I'm really also baffled by by the intensity of the discussion about how to date it. Uh, did it start with James Watt steam engine or did it start with the first nuclear blast in 1945? I mean, I don't think this is really the big issue. The big issue is what kind of a discontinuity are we seeing and and why? And I think actually in order to understand the discontinuity uh, in terms of how technology operates, um, we need to rethink the work of Martin Heidegger, uh, for one. Uh, I believe that the philosophers of technology like Heidegger and, and, and Ivan Illich and Louis Mumford and Herbert Marcuse, they were on to something that you know, possibly we're only able to see now. Uh, for Heidegger, it was very important that there was a discontinuity in technology uh, between pre-industrial and industrial technology. And unfortunately, we don't have words that that really um, uh, reflect that discontinuity. But but I would agree that technology became something very different after, say, seventeen. 70, 1780. Uh, and, and I would like to define that discontinuity, not so much in terms of fossil energy, even if that was crucial. But for me, the important thing is that the new technologies were contingent on global price differences. Up until then, you know, you could you could produce your own windmills or machines just by using local labor. But from that point, from the Industrial Revolution and until today, technology is globalized. It's dependent on price differences. We couldn't have solar panels in Germany if they hadn't been manufactured in China with that low wage labor of China. The steam engines in Britain would not have emerged if you didn't have uh, slave labor picking the cotton in the plantations. These technologies we've seen ever since the early 19th century have been contingent on global price relations. And I think that is actually what Heidegger and other philosophers of technology should 
have focused on. The fact that technology became something you could outsource, uh, the technological rationality that was overwhelming Europe in the early 19th century and, you know, basically making people scratch their heads at this miraculous new thing that was happening, which they call technology, was really about the, the, the um, merging of technological artifice with political economy, with the market. The market became a way of outsourcing. You could just bring in as much embodied labor, embodied land, embodied materials, embodied energy as you wanted. When the market made it possible to bring these things together and and you could build a machine in Europe or North America, people understood this to be ingenuity, whether it was actually a way of appropriating time and space by means of the market. And that's why I mean that the market, the economy, is really magic. Uh, For every technological artifact that we have, whether an iPhone or whatever, a computer, uh, every such artifact is founded on countless small market transactions. And a market transaction, I would argue, is a magical act. It is a kind of alchemy. Um, It's a conversion. You go to a market and you convert your own labor into somebody else's labor or some other thing. I mean, buying and selling is really a magical act. And it complies with all the definitions of magic you could find in the literature. Because magic is very often defined as a performative act, uh, a ritual act. And buying and selling in our society is very much ritual performance. You go and turn the iPhone or over and you say, how much? Okay, and then you stick your plastic card into the machine and you've paid for it and you can walk out. You have converted your own labor into somebody else's labor and resources. So this is the magic that goes into every modern piece of technology because every modern piece of technology is contingent on an economic transaction. It's also based on magic. Without those globalized economic transactions, technologies would not be magical in the sense that I I mean. point to talk about uh, uh, the the concept you coined in reference to David Harvey ti- to David Harvey's time space mm-hmm. compression you yeah. coined the concept of time space appropriation and I think yeah. sometimes when you when when we just say this oh sure we're stealing time and chi- we're, we're sort of appropriating labor time from China and land from there and whatever and resources I th- I think we need to emphasize this because it's actually quite profound and i think for me as i started reading your work i was more shifting to a kind of a um 
it, it, it's it's almost like I think sometimes maybe the 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 methods of science fiction writers are more appropriate to this than anything. The kind of where you with fiction enhance something and 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 make it crass or make it create a bit more of a contrast. But you're illustrating the same kinds of relationships and. Um, Uh, there's, for instance, there's a German uh, 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 children's book, excellent, excellent book about where it's, uh, which is basically, it's kind of a critique of capitalism. It's great that we have these kinds of children's books, <laughs> but it's a lot about time. And there are these gray men, which, uh, which sort of take, take it Momo by Michael Momo, Ender. exactly. Oh, yeah. yes, yes. And there are these gray men, which take time and all the poor people, they're just about to run out of lifetime. And I was, so th this little fictional conversion from what we would, have as currency as money so we think of poor people as lacking money but uh in a way this shift of lifetime literally lifetime is is uh, there's quite a, a vam vampire-esque aspect to this and this is totally obfuscated by the by the by, by our common sense by the common sense of no this is a fair transaction right absolutely and it's it's great that you mentioned momo because i remember that book i'm reading it for my kids, you know, decades ago. And I had to go look for it in the shelves because the, the whole idea of stealing time, uh, which is so counterintuitive, is actually precisely what technology does. And I remember a few years back when I was asked to explain what I meant by time-space appropriation, you know, this book, Momo, it just popped into my head. And I, I asked the audience, they were my age, and said, do you remember that book? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were able to connect. Uh, so there's definitely a stealing of time. But I want to give a credit here to Ivan Illich, uh, because he, uh, I, I, I don't know if I understood what he was talking about when he lectured in Lund once in the 70s, but I do remember going to one of his lectures. But recently, when I went back to tools for conviviality and his and his his, uh, his various uh, writings on on ecology and energy it's very obvious that he was aware that technology operated so as to you know appropriate time uh, and he says that velocity uh, the, the, the the higher speed you have in a vehicle a car or, or, or an airplane, the more you're stealing other people's lifetime. So even Illich in the early 1970s saw this very clearly that t technology by, 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 by increasing velocity was actually an instrument for stealing other people's time. So I, I, I think, uh, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I sort of, uh, subconsciously uh, had that in my mind when I coined this notion of time-space appropriation, but um, it certainly fits in with that notion. And of course, uh, the other aspect is the appropriation of space. And and that's very obvious to anybody who's heard of ecological footprints and, and how, you know, I've been I remember meeting Mattis Wackernagel and, and Bill Rees in the 1990s when they were talking about appropriated carrying capacities and ecological footprints. Now everybody's talking about footprints. We have carbon footprints. We have all kinds of footprints. Um, but we're very well aware that 
that our lifestyles in the global north are contingent on appropriating a, a land area somewhere in the planet on the planet and usually in the global south so we're appropriating not only other people's embodied labor time we're also appropriating the products of, of, of eco-productive surfaces elsewhere, the ecological footprint. And atmospheric capacity as well. Definitely. If I'm not mistaken, was Ricard Varlenius, yes, he yes. was one of your students, him and Andreas Malm had this uh, book chapter called The Grand Theft of the Atmosphere. I, I was I was going to mention Ricardo Valdianius exactly yeah. because he like like Andreas he's a former uh, student of mine and and he talked about appropriating appropriated thing capacity I think mm -hmm. uh, and and how I mean his 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 thesis is very much about well, the concept that I've been using for many years you know ecologically unequal exchange uh, but he sh he shows how how the appropriation of atmospheric sink capacity for carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions is really an aspect of this uh, asymmetry and inequality. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a simultaneous appropriation of present, past, and future time. De definitely. Well. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of aspects you could, you could, you could think about. I mean, for one thing, fossil energy is actually past land, right? It's, it's acreages of the past. It's eco-productive space photosynthesis hundreds of millions of years ago. So in a way we're, we're using past land, but, but also our, um, our carbon emissions are in, will be impacting on the productivity of, 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 of the earth way into the future for future generations. So we're appropriating not only the past, but also the future. Uh, the, the, the time and space of the past and the future. Uh, you can you can have all kinds of philosophical uh, approaches to that. That but, that actually yeah. makes me think, and maybe this is sort of like your attempt to level the playing field for the term magic to apply it at least across the board, so to mm -hmm. speak. And that actually makes things like, I mean, I like, I, I really like the examples that you use in, in global magic in the book, whether it's the cargo cults uh, and, and, and the provocative uh, re-engagement of them where you kind of slowly point out is this actually such an unreasonable way of, mm. of, of looking at the world and I was just thinking that uh, many many indigenous cultures would refer to uh, to mineral deposits um, through categories which translate into our language as ancestors right mm. and mm. when I listen to you saying these things it sounds quite reasonable to refer to mineral deposits or to sort of fossil deposits in the ground as ancestors. It sounds more reasonable than the supposed uh, pinnacle of reason, the scientific molecular structure, and just referring to it as a, as a deposit of a certain molecular uh, um, of a certain molecular structure and kind without any reference to time, right? But the the, the ancestor is somehow in in there. The, there was an expression. I think it was it was a quote in 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 a book by Elizabeth Povinelli about calling, referring to fossil fuels as ancient sunshine. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that expression mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. because once, because that's, we don't look at fossil fuels at coal or at, or at, or at uh, oil or gas and, and see ancient sunshine in that. We just mm -hmm. see a sort of, oh yeah, we just see it through that, through the eyes of, um, 
a, a sort of a, a chemical composition of some of some sort. No, that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just said ancient photosynthesis. That is the same thing. Basically, we know that those are the remains of, of ancient organisms, and of course, it all began with plant life. Um, so it's true. It, it is. It is solar energy. Um, but I, I, I'm an anthropologist, as you know, and I'm not. I'm not. Um, I don't recall uh, any indigenous group talking about mineral ores as ancestors. On the other hand, what was very famous from Latin America were all these cases of miners talking about mineral ores as the devil, as a, as a uh, supernatural and malicious evil creature um, that enslaved them. And and I think such, such metaphors are, are powerful because they they use whatever cognitive and symbolic resources these people have to, I mean, how, how are they supposed to understand mining uh, in other respects? You know, I mean, I, I remember how Michael Tausig, uh, he wrote a book called uh, The Devil and Commodity Fetishism in South America, I think it was 40 years back, but but how how miners in 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 Colombia would would baptize ritually baptize bills of money uh, asking money to come back to them in you know tenfold uh, magical acts and it struck me that uh, here here people are applying their own understanding of magic to an artifact which in itself is magical but beyond their control. I mean, magic, money fetishism is a modern form of magic, but here you have sort of almost pre-modern people applying pre-modern magic to an artifact that is in itself magical. you just point out across several papers is that uh, technology is only um, sort of validated uh, because it seems to work and that's precisely the thing when you look at when you look at Wall Street the same sort of or Frankfurt or wherever the same sort of baptism is is going on it's just mediated through um, mediated through machines uh, in a way that might not be the case with the miners that Michael Tausig um, mentions and yeah. that he studies. No, that's true. I remember even in that, you mentioned that before my 1992 article on the thermodynamics of imperialism. Um, you know, I, for, for many years, I've been very interested in the Inca empire and Inca civilization. And um, it, it struck me that the kind of magic that the Inca were engaged in, um, it, it worked, you know. It, 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 I mean, the, the, the Inca emperor communicated with his father, the sun god, through ritual and sacrifices of spandalus shells and so on, and it worked. I mean, the corn grew in the fields. Um, of course, <laughs> whether the corn growing was actually contingent on 
communication with the sun god is something we will never know. Uh, but to many Inca peasants, it worked. And I think that in some sense, the same thing applies to modern technology and modern economy. It works. Um, but I don't think we're quite aware why it works uh, in the same sense that the Inca peasants were probably not quite aware of, you know, of why their system worked. Uh, and, and, and so we're, we're, we're caught in our cultural bubble and confined to it in a way that, that they were also. And, and it, somehow this notion that we became enlightened in the 18th century and since then we know everything. And, you know, it's, mm. this is the big, the big illusion. And I think maybe much of the discourse in, in the humanities about the Anthropocene is really about upsetting that illusion. Uh, this does not mean that I want to turn my back on enlightenment, rationality, and, and science. Not at all. I frequently find myself in, in 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 discussions where I really contradict what people like Bruno Latour and Donna Haraway and Jane Bennett and so on are saying. Um, but I do think there are forms of modern magic that need to be exposed. And uh, I, I am disappointed in finding people like Bruno Latour more or less arguing that we don't need to expose fetishism anymore because why, do, why don't we just accept that everybody has fetishes and everybody is, is sort of um, – Everybody has, is involved in, in fetishistic practices. Who are we to call anybody a fetishist? Uh, you know, this is where he, there's a difference between him and Karl Marx, because for Karl Marx, to expose fetishism is an emancipatory project. It's to show that we're subject to an illusion that keeps some people in power, and we need to get out of that illusion. And that's where where I am side with Marx. I think we really need to continue exposing our fetishes. And that's where Bruno Latour and I, I, I probably are not agreed. Mm. Yeah, it's it, that article for anyone who wants to read it in theory, culture, society is 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 very. Interesting. Oh, you've seen that. But, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's um, one of my favorite polemics. Um, but uh, that that strikes me as very interesting because Marx was was very clearly engaged in the process of defamiliarization, which you see as so or should be so central to the mission of anthropology, but but too often is not, um, you know, and, and that gets into some of your uh, questions around case study methodology and, and the efficacy of it. Um, and and maybe we, we might come back to that. Um, but one of the things that, that Lucas and I wanted to ask is, can we do away with fetishism altogether? You know, in, in a in a complex global, yeah. Lucas, you wanted to jump in. Maybe to set that up, because I thought, and maybe we need to first uh, take a step back, but I will just put it out there for the framing, because I think this is a fascinating question, because on the mm -hmm. one hand, and I'm not, I'm not trying to sort of put you on the spot here and point out a contradiction in your thought or anything, but um, there, there, 
there is this there is there is tension around the question of fetishism right there is this tension where on the one hand something that you often point out is that you say it's a uniquely human uh, trait to uh, to be able to use artifacts to stabilize social relations yeah um, and that allows us to sort of extend relations beyond a certain size and build great yeah. civilizations and so on because artifacts become they they stabilize in in whatever manner and you mm. the inca empire used this just as much as modern neoliberal yeah. capitalism or whatever you for a certain size of civilization somehow this human ability to use artifacts to use material things to stabilize relations is 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 quite a is something that we haven't yet seen anywhere else other than in the other than where the human is involved um and then on the other hand there's this so artifacts stabilize social relations and then there's clearly when you point out fetishism and i think here you even uh something you mentioned a couple of times you even take marks to task uh where you so the the um the kind of the general the take by Marx is that basically a machine, uh, a technological appliance, or well, a machine, an industrial machine, is um, is based on the principle that the labor that goes into making it has to be less than the labor it replaces. That's when it's profitable for the capitalist to invest in a machine because you don't have to pay these laborers; you pay less laborers to make you a machine. So this it's this calculation. It's very much about uh, increasing relative surplus value. And you say, okay, but it's even worse than that because what he's not explicitly acknowledging there is world trade. And the fact that Marx is still holding on to a grain of sort of efficiency and technological progress there because he's implying that whenever we have a machine, it must mean that it's sort of a better use of labor power than we had before because yeah. the labor power that went into it is less than the labor power it replaced. So mm -hmm. that's increase of efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really, really important things, especially in the 1992 paper, is that you say, okay, but if we consider unequal and ace or asymmetric, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if those terms are, are, are yeah. equivalent for you, but asymmetric relations, especially in terms of trade, mm -hmm. um, then we can see how a machine can hear in Europe of whatever the 1900s or in North America or Japan, how a machine can here appear to be more efficient, mm. even though the labor and land requirements it replaced were actually more than the ones that were used for the for sort of the pre-machine way of doing this. Exactly. So you're even saying that, and this is where you, and this is where I think we need to talk about um, the second law of thermodynamics. And then I really want to come back to that question of, um, because there's a massive question of like, what is a good way of evaluating which technologies or techniques or ways of doing things are actually efficient because you're saying the way that we're doing it right now with uh, economics is basically we just evaluate them by market price. If it's mm. cheaper to import this machine that is made wherever uh, and with whatever resources, if it's cheaper to import that machine than to pay labor here, mm. then we're going to do it. And then it's deemed rational. And I thought I actually came yesterday. It was, it was very, very serendipitous, very a lot of synchronicity there. I came across this um, newspaper article in, uh, in, in, in a major German newspaper, which is uh, a little column by a, by a professor of economics who here in Munich, who, who, 
who is asked about what does the COVID-19 pandemic mean for globalization? Mm. And quite unashamedly, she just literally says, this is her first point, she says, uh, so a retreat from globalization makes no sense because because there are now mounting pressures, let's have production here again because outsourcing production creates all sorts of insecurities. And this is not even a sort of an economic... uh, uh, analysis, but it's just the lived experience right now. It's not even a a higher theoretical point, but some people are just saying Mm. we've experienced shortages of supply. So why are we not producing these things here? And quite unashamedly, she says, to bring back production here would significantly reduce wealth in Germany. So let's not do it. And she can just she can just say this. And and as you as you often say, I'm sure when she goes home, she's nice to her dog and nice to her children and her husband. And she's probably a very nice person. But the kind of magical <laughs> the, the magical facilitator that she is through being an economist mm. allows her to say these things, to say these incredibly violent things out in the open without uh without without that seeming at all to be oh no this is just this is just a state 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 of facts yes that's um, a very good example a very good one <laughs> what i want to draw attention back to is this I started with the point that Marx made mm-hmm. and that where you take him to task and where you say actually machines can be less efficient than mm. the than the way we did things before yeah. the machine or the prior machine or whatever. And this is where thermodynamics comes in, right? Yeah, uh, I, I don't even think we need the thermodynamics to make that argument because it has to do with the, about, with the relationship between time, human time and money. Um, I mean, if we go back to the washing machine to make it really, really simple, um, for Marx, which is is really very surprising when you consider his total perspective, uh, in that paragraph, that quote from him that you mentioned, he talks about the necessity of seeing to it that the amount of labor embodied in the machine is less than the amount of labor that it will displace, right? But he talks about the amount of labor. He does not ever talk about its cost in that context. Now, uh, it looks efficient if a machine displaces more labor than is used for its production. But it could that make would make it seem like a time-saving device or labor-saving device. But let's say that the people manufacturing the machine only earn 25% of the people who are supposed to work the machine in another country. Then it can be cost-efficient in terms of money to have that technology, but it is not time-efficient in the sense of saving any human time. And this is my major, uh, uh, this is why I would want to contradict the traditional Marxist understanding of technology as a labor saving device. That depends entirely on the cost of labor. And to me, it's so amazingly surprising that this was not uh, part of Marx's understanding of technology, to see it as a, a, um, 
an asymmetric transfer of embodied human time. It should have been part of his historical materialism. It should have been part of his focus on injustice and asymmetry and exploitation. But for him, the machine was a productive force, which was a free gift of nature, which is a a phrase you sometimes find in capital. Uh, So apparently there was something in his mind that stopped him from thinking of material things as embodiments of social relations. And I think this is the Cartesian dualism that is an obstacle still today for us to understand the extent to which machines are really societal phenomena. It's, it's the question of uh, global scale, isn't it, right? Because he very clearly saw the machines as embodiments of social relations uh, within the satanic mills of, of Manchester or wherever it was. And throughout, you know, the three volumes of, of Capital, it's supposed to be the case that the world market is the horizon and the presupposition of production at the same time, because we're examining the capitalist mode of production and its ideal average. But at the same time, these global social relations um, don't come to be de-fetishized in the same way that the more localized social relations are exposed and and the very categories are are questioned. Um, Yeah, yeah, okay. But I would say that the problem I, I find, and I have several very good friends who are really dedicated Marxists, and uh, they've all read more of Marx than I have. So, but I've I've I found several occasions, several reasons to discuss this with them. Um, my problem is that when Marx talks about the machine and how it increases the efficiency of labor. Um, he is rarely concerned with uh, the sort of well, – well, there are two matters I want to bring up. He's really concerned with what is the market for the British textile textiles that are being produced in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and the other aspect is where do the raw materials come from? Uh, and there are things there that, that – I mean – the Industrial Revolution was really a part of a very globalized uh, political economy. The, the, the main market for the textile producers in Britain was the slave, the slave traders uh, who went to West Africa with the cotton textiles and also the slave owners on the plantations who needed cheap clothing. And a third factor, of course, is that the slaves were cheap labor for picking the raw material for the cotton textile. So so the textile factories in Britain were so incredibly intertwined with slavery uh, that I would be I wouldn't hesitate to say that without 
global slavery and the triangle trade, uh, there wouldn't have been an industrial revolution in Britain. Uh, you would need to understand the emergence of, of steam-powered textile factories in Britain as a, a manifestation of, of a global metabolism that involves American land and African labor, and it's all very cheap, it makes, and it makes it possible. Uh, and, and the other aspect I want to bring up is if you go back a few decades, say, to the 1760s, before Britain started producing iron on a large scale on its own, most of the iron for the earliest um, machines in Britain came from Sweden, believe it or not. Uh, the iron ore was mined in Sweden. It was uh, made into bar iron with the help of charcoal, which, which um, required millions of hectares of Swedish forest and thousands of person-year equivalents of Swedish labor. So we're actually seeing that the earliest machines in themselves were embodiments of globally asymmetric exchange of labor and land even then. And then, of course, it became a self-reinforcing process. And not, not only did the iron come from, from, from uh, Scandinavia and, and required land and labor in Scandinavia, but even much later, um, Britain was very dependent on palm oil from West Africa. This was one of the reasons, I think, why Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness is all about this ship going up the Congo River. The, the palm oil in West Africa was extremely important as a lubricant for the steam engine in Britain. So uh, the, the global metabolism was very much still a part of, of British industry. And uh, to, to sort of excise the machine out of that global context is really what I mean by machine fetishism. Or another example for this would be the rubber from South America, right? Which Michael Tausig has also written about. Yes, right, absolutely. And I yeah. think this is actually, this maybe gets us back. There was another, uh, I, I really liked your take, your understanding, your sort of genealogical understanding of the emergence of classical and neoclassical economics, which, mm -hmm which I would say is, which I think the Marxist uh, category of ideology could be applied to that. Mm -hmm. This, this, the, which is, is the ideology that, that sort of is yeah. seeps through these kinds of newspaper articles that we don't even see anymore uh, mm -hmm. because it's just common sense for us. And you make this very heretical point where you say, why should we look at our current economic rationality any differently than the rationality of, 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 slave, of slavery, the triangular trade, which now we deem morally reprehensible. And um, you bring up the sort of the, the where economics as a discipline was situated throughout the ages. And you go back to Aristotle, you talk about Thomas Aquinas, and you talk about how for both the, I think it was both the ancients through the scholastics that uh, economics was always considered to be part of moral theology, or at least for Thomas Aquinas, it definitely mm -hmm. was. And somehow we have now managed to sort of separate it and say, no, this is just facts. These, these mm -hmm. are just, we just need to, op we just need to go for market equilibrium and we're going to calculate it. This is no, we, do, we don't need Thomas Aquinas's here anymore. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was really 
a framing that I hadn't encountered yet before that I found in your work was to think of um, the emergence of classical economics, like you take Ricardo actually almost like as a biographical example of this, that in order to at the same time comprehend and 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 like comprehend in the double sense of sort of uh, uh, understand and 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 keep consistency for himself to not find himself morally reprehensible for his gains in the in the stock markets. I think it was that he that that contributed to him coming up with this with this reason, with this rationality for deeming uh, global exchange and the global economy uh, reasonable and, 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 and sort of giving it these scientific, scientific principles. And I think the way you put it, you said that what classical and laser neoclassical economics allowed was the perpetuation of the imperial relations beyond the formal end of the British Empire and the formal end of slavery. Definitely. Um, that That's the way I, I think of it. I mean, the, the marginalist revolution uh, in, in, in economics in the 1870s, Victorian Britain, was all about uh, forgetting about the material, the materiality of world trade. Um, from from now on, you know, you have neoclassical economics with a complete focus on market equilibrium, um, and, and, and market mechanisms and everything is measurable in money. There's 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 no no interest at all in the material substance of the traded commodities. And uh, I think that I mean I, I'm not saying that there's a conspiracy involved. I don't think anybody figured this out. But in terms of some kind of um, uh, unwitting ideological function, this this understanding of the world as only about exchange values and, and monetary flows served to conceal the material asymmetries uh, that were so much part and parcel of the British Empire and that today are so much part and parcel of world trade. But we continue to look at world trade through the glasses of neoclassical economics as being only about money, whereas in fact there are highly asymmetric flows of material substances, matter, energy, land, labor. Um, and and it's, it's striking. I bought this textbook uh, on economics. Um, uh, it's, it's over a thousand pages long. And I looked, there's a 40 page index in it. And I looked for the word unequal exchange. It's not there. It just doesn't exist in the vocabulary of mainstream economics. Uh, and I've, I've heard I've heard some economists using the word unequal exchange for monopoly market power, where the market mechanisms are are, are, are not are, are not enabled. But uh, I the the whole idea that a free market transaction could be unequal is completely unfathomable for for a mainstream economist because. By definition, if you if you do a, if you have a voluntary market transaction, then it's fair. Doesn't matter what the substance of the trade is. So uh, yeah, 
yeah, definitely. There's a there's a strong ideological dimension to it. And since you mentioned uh, Ricardo, I. I I, I would like also to say something about his very crucial concept of comparative advantage, which still today is such a, an important foundation for economic thought. Um, it is really a very cynical way of, of talking about um, price differences in the global system. I mean, if we really wanted to be cynical, we could ask, for example, was it a comparative advantage of the southern states in the United States to have slaves, slave labor? Was that a comparative advantage that made, uh, obviously, Ricardo would have to say yes. This 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 was one of the reasons why it was good for the southern states to to engage in the export of cotton fiber, uh, cheap colonial land and cheap slave labor. And 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 by extension, we could ask today if China's comparative advantage in producing electronics like and photovoltaic panels, if it's if it's comparative advantage lies in low-income labor, poverty in other words, and lacks environmental legislation, that is environmental degradation. Are these comparative advantages? Is that the way we should theorize? Uh, is that the way we should conceptualize world trade? Um, it's very much like that newspaper clipping that you quoted. You know, how, how could we maintain our 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 position in Germany, our wealth, if and, we and didn't I, have? Yeah. And I would say it is that language of economics which serves yeah. the function. And, and there's actually on this point that you just mentioned, I had a great quote from you where you say, "To assert that the relatively low wages and the land and land rents, relatively low wages and land rents of 19th century Prussia and 21st century China offer these offered these countries a comparative advantage okay, in, the world, in world trade mm -hmm. is a rather cynical euphemism. And I like that word a lot, cynical <laughs> euphemism yeah, uh, yeah. For, for other countries taking advantage of their, of their poverty and lax environmental legislation. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, it's very, it, it, that, that's, that's the fact of the point I want to make. Um, that that what we the, the 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 terminology used by economists to describe efficiency in trade and why free trade is so good and so efficient is precisely about euphemisms about about not not um, conceding that there are asymmetries in terms of flows of resources and embodied labor. Um, but to talk I, about them in a way that, that makes them look merely advantageous. Yeah. So. I actually had to think, I'm not sure if you ever considered this parallel, but I had to think of Hannah Arendt's work on the on the the banality of evil and 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 the language that she found. And I was reminded of that because oftentimes I think the way that you there seems to be this thin line to tread where I think a lot of the people who perhaps share some of the intuitions that you would cheer on. Mm -hmm. uh, are actually go steer all the way to the completely conspiratorial, mm -hmm. uh, excessive uh, uh, take on this, like the QAnon 
uh, yeah. movement in the US, I think is a good example, where the only way to somehow stabilize some of these intuitions about there's something weird here mm. is to attribute some sort of satanical rituals mm. to the powerful and and whatever. Mm. But I think what you're saying is the the evil is much more banal here. These are, as I, I so this is one of my favorite lines, which uh, Hannah Arendt also said in interviews, when she walked into that courtroom in Jerusalem mm. and saw Eichmann, mm. she, she thought, and she used the German word Hans Wurst. So it's just such an ordinary, such an ordinary man. It was so she kind of yeah. she kind of pitied him almost and she felt reminded of her uncle and she just and i think that the amazing in, insight that she provided is that evil it can really accommodate itself in the most mundane what the what the nazis called amtssprache yeah. so just the the language of the job I'm really glad you brought this up. And I also remember uh, Hannah Arendt's reflections on Eichmann and the fact that his nose was running. He had a cold. <laughs> you know, she could she could see that this was a human being. As 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 as, as of course, um, yeah. And, and the, 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 I have I've always found it difficult to see the world in black and white in terms of a binary of good and evil. Um, I, 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 I don't believe in conspiracies. I, I believe that uh, even the slave owners, you know, they were they were products of their times. And that's why I have difficulties sometimes today with some of my friends and colleagues who who uh, have such an anger uh, regarding the current situation of the world. Um, I, um, I do not engage in in, in, in agitation, in, in, in trying to promote political action, um, because uh, very often activism is about stirring violent emotions. And there are also people who are actually suggesting uh, sabotage of different kinds to 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 get things to change and that's where something you know i have to stop and reflect um historically sabotage has rarely been able to sequester the vulnerable majority from the powerful minority and, and people get hurt whenever a political transition of some sort is made into a conflict. I have I have difficulties with this. Um, I don't know how to handle it. So but I, I I very much understand the kind of people who the people who feel that the situation is so desperate now with climate change and global inequalities that we need we need more than just talk and research and 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 conferences. We need physical sabotage. I, I see these ideas popping up now and I, I, um, yeah, I don't know how to handle them. I, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your, your perspective.
this was part one of our conversation with Alf Hornborg. And part two of our conversation will specifically focus on his proposal of an alternative currency and the ways in which such a currency could contribute to counteracting both social and environmental devastation. So definitely stay tuned for part two of this conversation. We also wanted to thank again our friend and contributor Gaetano Fiorin for the music. You can find more of his music on SoundCloud at Gaetano Fiorin. Thanks for listening.